Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it's made. Welcome, everyone. Today I'm talking to Dimitri Tobinski from the University of California in Berkeley, and we will be talking about his paper, Regressive Syntaxes, with an application to optimal soda text. First of all, thanks, Dimitri, for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks a lot for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Could you briefly explain what the paper is about? Sure. As the title suggests, it's about syntaxes, by which we mean taxes on goods such as sugary drinks or alcohol or cigarettes, which are commonly believed to be overconsumed. Um, they might be overconsumed because of externalities, for example, through the health costs that consumers of these goods impose on society and don't fully internalize, um, or because of internalities, because consumers of these goods might be hurting themselves by overconsuming these goods because of behavioral biases such as failures of self-control or because um, consumers of these goods might not be fully aware of just how bad um, these products are for them. So the policy debate around syntaxes revolves around a few issues. One is, should we try to counteract the potential counterconsumption of these sin goods? That's the standard Pigouvian rationale. But the counter to that is that, unfortunately, the people who are most likely to be consuming these products are low-income people. Cigarette um, consumption, sugary drinks consumption, those are much, much higher for people at the low end of the income distribution than for people at the high end distribution. And so the worry is that when we impose taxes on these goods, the taxes are going to be regressive in the sense that they impose a much higher burden on lower income people than higher income people. And so that ends up pushing against the Pigouvian um, rationale to tax these goods. And then it also raises a number of other nuanced issues like possible replies of, well, can we offset the regressivity by taking the tax revenue and directing it toward um, progressive policy initiatives? For example, when sugary drinks were pro first proposed in Philadelphia, um, the mayor said, I understand you're worrying they, the taxes might be regressive, but what I'm going to do is take the revenue and direct it toward universal pre-K programs. There are also other nuances with having to do with behavioral biases. If low-income people are the ones who most heavily consume these goods, then they might also be the ones who suffer the most then from overconsumption due to behavioral biases, and then there's a sense in which behavior change might be progressive. So it's actually a very complicated um, set of issues. And in a nutshell, the goal of this paper is to develop a framework that can actually speak to all of these issues and speak to all of these issue no, issues in a way that is actually empirically tractable. 
we're not just going after a super general framework that considers everything but doesn't deliver sharp quantitative implications. We're going after a framework that speaks to all of these issues in a manner that can actually then deliver specific recommendations such as the optimal sugary drinks tax should be um, approximately one and a half cents per ounce. So we develop a theoretical framework and we develop an empirical methodology that um, um, can be used to implement the formulas that come out of the theoretical framework. And, you know, in our case, it's sugary drinks taxes, but you could um, easily transport our theoretical empirical methods to other kinds of debates like um, alcohol taxes, cigarette taxes, taxes on energy efficient appliances, um, and so forth. That sounds very interesting. Uh, do you know of anyone who has tried to uh, apply this framework to these other contexts, or have you any plans on working more on this in the future? Yeah, I, so there are a lot of people who are using our specific empirical results from the sugary drinks context to um, consider generalizations um, of some of the theoretical implications. Um, Hunt, ben and I are currently working on a variation of some of these ideas in the context of, um, of state-run lotteries, where there are also some similar concerns um, because, um, you know, on the one hand, you might think state-run lotteries are a good way to raise revenue. On the other hand, you might worry that it's the lower-income people who are most likely to spend on state-run lotteries, and then it really becomes a problem if some of this um, spending is due to behavioral biases, such as improper conceptualization of uh, low-likelihood events. Um, and it's a pretty different setting. It requires its own um, set of um, theoretical concepts and somewhat different empirical strategies, but we're using, we are able to use variants of um, some of the ideas from the regressive syntax paper to tackle this related policy question. You already mentioned one of your co-authors right now, Benjamin Lockwood, and it's this work is uh, joint work with him and Hunt Alcott. And how yes. did you come to work with, with both of them? Well, um, it actually, the paper actually started as two different projects. So um, with Ben, we started working on the theoretical component in around to mid-2014, I believe, maybe late 2014. Um, and Ben and I kind of started chatting because we both had interests in the theoretical aspects of the intersection between optimal tax theory and behavioral economics. Um, he was working on some stuff in that area. I was working on some stuff in that area. Um, and then we kind of converged on this intersection of um, thinking about regressive syntaxes through the lens of both behavioral economics and um, optimal tax theory. Hunt and I started talking about related issues 
because we've actually known each other for a while. Um, we've been working together since probably around 2010, 2009. Um, we have some earlier work um, that is also in the space of behavioral public economics. Um, one paper on um, light bulbs, um, whether um, light bulb bans are justified by behavioral biases such as inattention or incorrect beliefs, um, and some other related work on um, optimal energy policy in the presence of behavioral biases. Um, so, so we had a history of working together, and we thought it would be fun to tackle this recent policy question of should we have sugary drinks taxes? You know, conversations were really heating up um, around that time. Um, Berkeley was considering introducing them. A few other cities in the U.S. were considering introducing them, and it was a pretty heated debate. So we thought this would be um, the next fun debate for us to um, try to contribute to. Um, so for a while, it was kind of, I was talking to Ben about the theoretical aspects. I was talking to Hunt about the empirical aspects. And then at some point, we all realized this would be a far stronger project if we um, fully joined forces and made this um, kind of um, um, a very comprehensive paper, which illustrates how the theory can be applied. Um, and that illustrates um, and fully grounds all of the theoretical aspects of the empirical identification strategies. So you briefly mentioned already that at least the empirical part of the paper was motivated by a recent policy debate about uh, soda taxes or by policymakers actually considering whether they want to introduce these taxes. Do you follow policy debates a lot and take this as an inspiration for research? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's quite rewarding to work on topics that many other people and not just academic economists find relevant um, and important. And I think it's especially fun to work on topics where there's a lot of disagreement, not questions where everyone already knows the answer, because those are situations in which um, you can really come in and say, look, you know, everyone has their set of issues, but here's how we can start reconciling and synthesizing using economics. Here's a framework that takes all of the different considerations into account, um, and here is an objective scientific empirical methodology for actually coming up with quantitative answers. Um, it's very rare for people to come up with a quantitative answer just by debating stuff. Um, but this is where kind of economics has, I think, um, particularly a lot to say, the specific quantitative answers such as here's what should be the optimal sugary drinks tax. And do you have any specific way of kind of following policy debates? You just read the news or do you go to like, practitioners events or policy based conferences or things like that? 
I, I'm not that sophisticated. I don't have <laughs> any kind of, um, uh, I don't have a very good formula for which policy debates to follow and try to contribute to. Um, I just have a set of issues that I'm interested in from an academic perspective, and there are some policy debates that I follow and that I find very interesting and that I then see to be connected with the academic issues that I'm interested in and that um, um, and that ends up being sometimes ends up being nice motivation for a paper. And how did you start the um, theoretical part of the paper that you initially uh, worked on with Benjamin Lockwood? Was that also inspired by policy debates, or did this inspiration come from somewhere else? That was also inspired by policy debates, um, and this also illustrates the other reason why it's kind of useful to look around and listen to what people are saying, um, because the policy debates can kind of help guide theory toward incorporating the things that seem to be truly relevant. Um, and the motivation was that, you know, on the one hand, behavioral biases did seem to be important in these domains. There are many reasons from behavioral economics to think that people might not have correct beliefs about the health consequences of sugary drinks or cigarettes or alcohol consumption. There are also many reasons to think that there might be some failures of self-control that drive overconsumption of these goods. And indeed, some of the earliest applications in behavioral economics were about taxes that counteract these behavioral biases. So I'm thinking about, for example, the work by Donahue and Rabin or um, by Gruber and Kosegi. But when we looked at the policy debate, we realized that there was just so much missing from um, the simpler economic frameworks that were used to address these questions because there's a lot more to the debate than just saying, People overconsume these goods. We should therefore tax these goods to counteract the overconsumption. Because as I mentioned, there's just been a huge debate about um, whether we should have these taxes if they are um, regressive in the sense that they generate a much higher burden on low-income populations. So there's been a huge fairness debate. You know, for example, Bernie Sanders really um, opposed the Philadelphia sugary drinks tax in 2015, 16, when he was campaigning there, basically on the grounds that it would be extremely unfair and um, increase inequality. Um, and so that was missing from some of the earlier work in behavioral economics. And that then, of course, creates this additional nuance of, okay, but what can we do with the tax revenue to offset some of this regressivity? Can we try to redistribute it in a progressive way? Um, and so once you start thinking about these kinds of issues, you quickly find yourself um, in the land of optimal tax theory, which specifically deals with questions about inequality and redistribution 
nonlinear income taxes that can be used to redistribute commodity tax revenue in a progressive way um, if that's optimal. Um, and so the policy debates kind of naturally guided um, Ben and me to think about um, combining some of the earlier work from behavioral economics with um, all of this, you know, decades of work in optimal tax theory on issues of um, redistribution. And as so you mentioned uh, sometimes that uh, it's very important for policymakers to figure out who kind of pays the, base, uh, the burden of this tax and who is, um, how much it will affect low-income people. And to know this, uh, you need to know something about the demand elasticity. So how will people's purchasing behavior be affected uh, by changes in prices? And you use a very interesting strategy to estimate this where you exploit uh, when different sugary drinks are on sale in retail chains. Can you explain a bit how this works and how you got the idea to do this? Sure. Um, okay, so let's just start with the goal. So the goal is to understand the causal impact of sugary drinks prices on demand for sugary drinks. What we can't do to answer this question is just study the correlation between sugary drinks prices and demand because of the simultaneity problem, which is that shocks to demand might drive sugary drinks prices. So what we want from a good identification strategy is variation in prices that is plausibly exogenous to the demand conditions of a person's um, county okay, or any kind of neighborhood. For us, we um, look at things at the county level. So how do we get there? Well, there are two facts that motivate our strategy, and these facts um, are the subject of, for example, a recent work by Stefano Della Vigna and Matt Genskow on uniform pricing. And these two facts are as follows. One, when a retail chain, such as Safeway, changes its prices on a product, it does so pretty uniformly across all of its locations. So when Safeway increases or decreases, the price of a 12-pack of Coca-Cola in um, somewhere in California, it's also going to do almost the same thing um, in New York City. So that's fact one. Fact two is that when retail chains change around their prices, they do so very idiosyncratically. So when Safeway puts um, a 12-pack of Coke on sale, there's no reason for Lucky's to do the same thing. Lucky's will put the 12-pack of Coke on sale at a totally different time, and there's just absolutely no relationship between the price fluctuations of Safeway um, and of Lucky's. So what this means is the following. Imagine one person who is primarily a Safeway customer and another person who is primarily a Lucky's customer. When Safeway decreases its prices, 
that means that the Safeway customer is now facing lower prices on Coca-Cola. And we can talk about a price decrease that is actually plausibly exogenous to um, any local demand conditions of that um, person's county because we can say, let's just use as an instrument the average price that Safeway charges at all counties outside of that person's county. Okay, so we're using as an instrument a price change that um, is almost by construction plausibly exogenous to that person's county demand conditions. But we know that instrument is very powerful because pricing is so rigid within chain. Okay, so when Safeway puts its products on sale, price goes down a lot for the Safeway shopper, um, but it doesn't go down a lot for the Lucky's shopper. Conversely, when Lucky's puts its 12-pack of Coke on sale, prices go down a lot for the Lucky shopper, but not for the Safeway shopper. And so now what we have is um, exogenous variation um, in prices um, that is um, um, basically driven by idiosyncratic but rigid pricing decisions of retail chains. And that's what we use to exploit um, how consumers respond to prices. Um, we have two data sets that allow us to do this. One um, is the Nielsen HomeScan data set, which actually tracks each person's purchasing decisions um, at a very granular level. Um, this is the HomeScan. Whatever they buy at a grocery store, they bring back and they scan in. So that's what allows us to track how each person um, changes their purchasing patterns at a very granular level. The other data set is the retail data, which just gives us the retail prices charged by um, most of the big um, chains in the U.S., and that's what we use to construct our instruments for sugary drinks prices. Uh, very interesting. And uh, another important thing that you uh, wanted to know for the paper is whether it's a mistake that some demographics drink too many sugary drinks and whether this is not in their best interest. So you kind of thought that they might be driven by a lack of knowledge about uh, the nutrition you know, values of these sugary drinks and how, how they relate to health consequences maybe. Uh, and to learn something about this, you use a survey. Um, can you explain a bit what you asked in the survey and how this helps you to kind of figure out whether people drink sugary drinks due to a lack of knowledge about the consequences? Yeah, so I already mentioned the HomeScan data set, which has um, about 60,000 households per year um, with this granular consumption data. And one of the really cool things you can do um, together with Nielsen is actually administer a survey to these home scan households. So we administered a survey um, to a bunch of these households. Um, I think we had about 30,000 in the survey, um, which had a few key modules. So one was a nutrition knowledge questionnaire that's been developed by public health researchers. And that is basically like a general measure of nutritional literacy, sort of analogous to 
financial literacy measures that we see in household finance applications. Another component was people's self-assessed self-control problems when it comes to sugary drinks consumption. In other words, do people feel like they consume sugary drinks more than they should? We also, because we had many households um, where both members were home scan panels, we also asked people to assess the, the self-control of their spouse to gauge the extent to which people are reporting their, self -control, their own self-control truthfully. So another question that was, do you think your spouse drinks um, sugary drinks more often than they should? Um, and we also had a module that assessed people's preferences because we want to be able to control for tastes and other aspects of preferences when we relate nutrition literacy and self-control to sugary drinks consumption. So this module assessed the extent to which people like the taste of various kinds of sugary drinks as well as non-sugary drinks. Um, and it assessed how much people are concerned about their health, and generally speaking. So using these data, we can then ask, ask the following question. Controlling for demographics, controlling for people's tastes, controlling for how much people care about their health, what is the relationship between nutritional literacy and sugary drinks consumption? What is the relationship between reported self-control and sugary drinks consumption? And we find that those relationships are very, very strong and positive. People with higher nutritional literacy consume far fewer sugary drinks. People with higher self-control consume far fewer sugary drinks. And so what this indicates is that some of sugary drinks consumption might be due to behavioral biases. Now, this evidence is still correlational, even after we do our best to control for everything possible. But if you take these relationships at face value, um, meaning that you interpret the relationship between nutritional literacy and soda consumption and the, and the relationship between self-control and soda consumption as causal effects of self-control and nutritional literacy, that gives you a measure of the extent to which people overconsume sugary drinks because of poor nutrition knowledge or limited self-control. In particular, you can ask the following counterfactual question after you estimate the relationship between sugar drinks consumption and nutrition knowledge and self-control. Um, the counterfactual question is the following. If people were as knowledgeable as nutritionists and if people had no limitations in their self-control, how much would they then consume sugary drinks? So the answer to this question gives us an estimate of the quantity effects of behavioral biases. The difference between average consumption and the counterfactual consumption of people with perfect self-control and essentially perfect nutrition knowledge is the quantity effect of incorrect beliefs and 
limited self-control on sugary drinks consumption. From this quantity measure of bias, you can then get a money metric measure of bias, by which I mean the extent to which people overestimate the marginal utility of sugary drinks in dollar terms. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by combining the quantity estimates with our estimates of the price elasticity of demand. Okay. So um, imagine that we have an elasticity of 1.5, and we find that behavioral biases lead people to overconsume sugary drinks by 30%. Um, so what does that then mean about the money metric measure of biases? Well, it means that people um, overestimate the marginal utility of sugary drinks by as much as um, a 20% um, of the current market prices of sugary drinks. And then, if, of course, if you know the market prices, you can then immediately translate that to dollar terms. Um, so that strategy implements exactly the statistic that is required by the theory, which is this money metric measure of bias. Again, which is by how much in money terms do people overestimate the marginal utility um, of sugary drinks. Okay. And you already mentioned that this uh, project kind of started as two different projects uh, and initially it was a theory and an empirical paper and at some point it merged. At the point where it merged, did you already kind of have envisioned the, envisioned the paper that you wrote right now with the survey and everything or how did kind of this project evolve over time after the merge? We roughly had this outline when we started considering the merge. Um, you know, we kind of had our set of empirical strategies. We already had the theoretical results. Um, so the structure of the paper wasn't that different compared to the point in time at which we decided to merge. Um, of course, it took a lot of work to do the merging um, because we had to figure out what to cut from both the theoretical component, what to cut from um, the empirical results. It, 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 you know, it ended up a very long paper, um, but that was after um, um, tons of work being put into um, kind of making sure that um, all of the components are a reasonable length um, and speak to each other. Um, there is a sense in which everything got better when we merged because when you have a paper that both has a theoretical component and an empirical component, it ends up disciplining how you write the theory. Now when you write the theory, you're not just saying it can be applied, you're writing the, the theory in a way that is immediately ready for empirical implementation. And the way that you construct your empirical results, you're not just saying in some loose sense that they are theoretically grounded. You have to make sure that all of the statistics that come out of the empirics are exactly the statistics that are required by the theory. So there was, um, there was some of that that um, 
some of that kind of work that ended up tightening both the theoretical and the um, and the empirical component. Um, and then there is kind of actually a third part to the paper, which was fairly new, which is the simulations, where we combine the theory, combine the empirics, and we actually start producing quantitative estimates of optimal taxes. And how did you kind of distribute the work between the team of co-authors? So I'm guessing because the project started as two di different papers, you kind of kept working on the theory with Benjamin and on the empirics with Sant, or did you kind of end up all working on everything? No, that's, that's roughly the distribution of work. Um, you know, Ben and I did a bit more on the theory. Hunt and I did more on the empirical strategy. Um, we all read and reread and reread and argued over every sentence, um, you know, many, many times. Um, ev everything gets better when someone who is primarily working on the theory reads the empirical component and when someone who was working more on the empirics reads the theoretical component. Um, and so kind of through combining and through everyone reading every little sentence in the paper, um, um, everything just got much tighter um, and snappier. And how long did it kind of take you to finish this project from kind of the start of the two separate projects to the time that you submitted? Well, um, I think as I mentioned, the theory part kind of got started mid to late 2014. And we submitted this paper in, I believe, July of 2018. So that's four years from first having an idea to submission. And is that roughly the time that you kind of expected this project to take at the start, or is it shorter, is it longer? Relative to my 2014 self, it's longer, because at that point I thought that everything can go very fast, um, and it's weird to take more than a couple of years to write up and submit a paper. Um, Relative to my 2020 self, I actually think that was quite fast <laughs> for how much went into that paper. So, yeah, over time you may become a bit more realistic about how long things take. Um, yeah, especially, especially when I think about other projects that I started in 2014 and 2015 that um, I'm still drafting up. Um, yeah, research takes a long time, especially if you're um, trying very hard to um, kind of create a very polished product. Maybe that's a good closing sentence to complete this interview. Uh, Dimitri, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And um, yeah, thanks also to our listeners for tuning in. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. <laughs>